Welcome to Be Set Free, the radio outreach of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. Be Set Free features the teaching ministry of Pastor Nick Cady. Pastor Nick's desire is to bring the gospel into our lives so we can experience the joy and freedom that can only be found through Jesus. Today's message comes from our series, Crux, a study in the book of Colossians. Here's Pastor Nick. When Jesus is your life, the result is not only a rich inward life of, of private spirituality, but it also affects, it shapes your outward life of how you relate to other people. You know, I remember shortly after I became a Christian, I realized there was something about myself that wasn't good. I realized that I had two groups of friends. On the one hand, I had this one group of friends who I'd hang out with, and we would act in a decidedly not Christian way. And then I had had these other friends, and when I, uh, you know, I hung out with them, we went to church together, we go to like Bible study together, and I, depending on which group I was with, I would act completely differently. I would talk differently, use different language, I would use, tell different kinds of jokes, and I was very careful never to let these two groups of people meet each other because if they did, it'd be like worlds colliding, it'd be super awkward because each of these groups knew me to be a different person, really. How many of you can relate to that? It was an extremely freeing moment in my life when I determined to be the same person all the time. You see, that's actually what it means to have integrity. Integrity means that you're the same person no matter what setting you're in. To have integrity and be the same person all the time. No matter if I was at work or church or family, I would be the same person all the time. You know, there are, there are some people who are great at private spirituality, but where they can afford to grow is in this area, public relations, and living out their Christian life in their workplace, in their relationships with people outside the church. Paul the Apostle here says, Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. You know, in the book of James, God reminds us that our lives are like a vapor, a vapor that appears for a moment and then it disappears. In other words, we have a short time here on earth and we don't know which day is going to be our last. We have no guarantees. And so make good use of the time that you've been given as regards especially people who don't yet have the hope of the gospel. That's who he's speaking about and how we relate to them. He says, let your speech always be gracious and seasoned with salt. This reminds us of what Jesus said in the Sermon of the, on the Mount where he said, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt loses saltiness, then what is it good for? He says, it's given up that which makes it unique, that which gives it value and purpose. And that salt that he refers to there refers to the knowledge of God. It says, let your speech always be flavored with it, a dash of it here and there in your conversations and your interactions with people. And he says, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. You know, one of the most important roles of the church is, on the one hand, right, we are a place of celebration, celebration of the gospel, a place of celebration and worship, but also we're a place of equipping for ministry. Paul says that in Ephesians chapter 4. He says, that is the role that God has given the church to equip the saints for the work of ministry. That's a big part of what shapes what we do here as a church, by the way. It's why we teach the children's ministry the way that we teach it. It's why we offer school of ministry and discipleship classes at church. It's why we teach the Bible the way that we do on Sunday mornings. One of our key goals is to equip you so that as you leave this place, as you go out into your daily life and into your neighborhoods and workplaces, that you can be ambassadors for Christ and that you'll be equipped to answer people and to speak into situations uh, as people have questions and, and to bring the hope of the gospel into your interactions with other people. 
You know, it's been said that the greatest dilemma that modern people have in regard to God is the question of, if God exists, then why is there so much suffering and injustice in the world? In fact, if you think, you remember Nietzsche famously said, God is dead and we killed him. But you know, when Nietzsche was saying that, he wasn't, he wasn't saying that as a good thing. He was saying that as a bad thing. He was saying, it's, this is what we've done as a society. We've killed God, uh, you know, and it's not good was essentially what he's saying. But here's the thing. Why did he say that? He said that the reason why people have a hard time believing in God is because they look all around them and they see injustice and suffering in the world. And so it's just an example. You know, how do we answer people? How do we bring an answer? If this is the big question that modern society struggles with, the question of if God exists, then why is there so much suffering and injustice in the world? How do we answer that? You know, the way most people think and the way that traditional religions teach is this kind of motif that, right, if you do what's good, then God will reward you. If you are a good moral person and you do all the right things, then God will reward you with a nice, comfortable, good life. And if you're immoral, well, then God will punish you and bad things will happen to you. And that's how most people expect life to work. The problem is when you look around, that's oftentimes not how it works at all. You, you start looking around and you start seeing that people who are prospering, they're, they're lying, cheating, and stealing, and yet they're prospering. And, and you see innocent people, you see children suffering. You see that good people, so to say, get cancer. Wonderful, lovely people get trampled on. Nice guys finish last. And you look at that and you say, this is not fair. It's not right. And so the conclusion that many people come to, especially in our modern day and age, right, is this. Well, then we've only got a few options. Either, number one, God does not exist, or number two, if God does exist, well, then he's certainly not a good God because clearly he's totally aloof and he's uninvolved and disinterested with putting an end to the suffering and injustice here on earth. I read about uh, a play. I'll just give you a little background. Right after World War II in Germany, Many people, you know, at the end of the war, they were waking up to realize the atrocities that had been committed in the Holocaust by their own countrymen. And they began to ask the question as they looked around and realized, you know, the things that had been done under the Nazi regime during the Holocaust. And they began to ask the question, who's responsible for this? And they would look to each other and say, did you, you did this? How could you do something like this? And the response of everybody to that question was, hey, it's not my fault. I was just following orders. It was the guy above me. He's the one you need to talk to. And so there was a, a German playwright at this time who wrote a play, and the title of the play was The Sign of Jonah. And as part of this play, right, the play begins, and it's this thing which is going on in German society. Everybody's asking each other, hey, how could you do this? You know, this atrocity that was committed. And everybody kept saying, it wasn't me. It's not my fault. It was the guy above me. It's his fault. You need to talk to him. And so in this play, they keep going up the ladder, right? Talking to the superior officer and the superior officer. Well, he says that you told him to do this. And the guy says, yeah, but it wasn't my fault. It was the guy above me. And it goes all the way up. And in the end... They all come to the same conclusion in, the, in this play, and that's this. Who's to blame for all the terrible things that have happened? Well, it's the guy at the very top. In other words, it's not our fault. It's God's fault. God is to blame for all of the evil and injustice in the world. And at the end of this play, they actually put God on trial, and they find him guilty, and they sentence him. And this is the sentence that they pronounce on God. This is a quote from the play. He must become a human being, a wanderer on the earth, deprived of his rights, 
homeless, hungry, thirsty, and he himself shall die, and he shall lose his son, and he shall suffer the agonies of fatherhood, and when at last he dies, he shall be disgraced and ridiculed. Do you see that? Here's the conclusion they came to. They came to the conclusion that there is a God, there must be a God, and if there is a God, though, we've got a problem because this world is full of terrible tragedies and injustices and sicknesses and things that just aren't fair and aren't right, and the only way for this to be made right is that God himself needs to come here, and he needs to experience it himself, and he himself shall die. And that's the exact thing, though, don't you see? That's the exact thing that God has done for us in Jesus. That is the message of the gospel. The gospel message is that God is not aloof. He's not disinterested. He's not just far away and doesn't have any interest in, or care. He, he's not disconnected. He's not just watching things from the comfort of heaven and, and not doing anything. But he has come to us. He entered into our fallen world. And he took our curse upon himself in order to end it, in order to make it right, in order to put an end to injustice and, and suffering once and for all. The message of the gospel is that God did come among us and that he bore the full weight of what is wrong with this world. And he even died under it so that one day he could end evil without ending us. And there's a place in the book of Genesis, maybe you remember the story, God puts a man to the test, the ultimate test, by asking him to give up his son, his only son, whom he loves, that specific language. And he says to Abraham after the test is over, and of course he doesn't make him give up his son, but at the end of the test he says, now I know that you love me because you did not spare your son, your only son. And do you see that when we understand the gospel, we say that exact same phrase back to God. We can say that same thing back to him. I know that you love me because you did not spare your son, your only son. In Jesus, on the cross, we, we find the answers to the riddles of life. And so, getting back to where we started, in our interactions with people who don't share our beliefs, may we walk with wisdom, may we walk with integrity, because the time is short. May our speech always be gracious and seasoned with the salt of the knowledge of God and the salt of the word of God. May we be those who know how to speak in a way that shows how the gospel speaks to the things that people are wondering about and struggling with and wrestling over. And this brings us to our final section, the final section of the book, starting in verse 7, where we talk about the topic of friendship. This is the other area. When Jesus is your life, this is another area it affects, friendship. You know, the, really the content of this letter of uh, Paul to the Colossians comes to an end in verse 6. And from verse 7 to verse 18, we have just kind of some closing comments, some shout-outs to some friends. And in his various letters, this is a common theme uh, throughout Paul's letters, and he mentions over 100 people in all his different letters, 100 unique people by name whom he counted as friends. Now, the point here for us is this, in this topic of Jesus, our life, is this. Christianity is not an individual pursuit. It's a team sport. You've been listening to a message by Pastor Nick Cady of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. We'll get back to the remainder of this message in a moment. We are open for in-person worship on Sunday mornings with services at 8, 9.30, and 11 a.m. Come grow with us on Sunday mornings, online or in person at 8, 9.30, and 11 a.m. Now, back to Pastor Nick with the remainder of today's message. 
It's not an individual pursuit. It's a team sport. In order for you to become the person who God is calling you to be, you need other people around you. And this is one of the reasons, for example, why we, we want to see everybody here at Whitefields involved in a community group. That's our desire. So I encourage you, check it out, sign up. See, in order for you to grow, you need other people around you. You need people who have different perspectives and different gifts so that together you can spur each other on to faith and good works. See, what you need, what I need, what we need is spiritual friendship. Now, I say that word friendship with a bit of hesitation. And here's why. Because I think it can easily be misunderstood. Because when I say the the word friendship, a lot of people in their mind are going to go to this idea that, oh, so I need to find people who I like to be around. That's what friendship's about, people I like to be around. People who are maybe my same age and same status in life. People who share my particular interests and hobbies and, and things like that. But that's not at all what I have in mind when I'm talking about spiritual friendship. What I have in mind is, is how C.S. Lewis described friendship. He said this, friendship happens when two people see the same truth. He said the posture of friendship, as opposed to the posture of love, the two people who are in love, are, their posture is they're looking at each other saying, I love you, I love you. But two people who are friends, their posture is two people standing side by side looking at a third thing and saying, I love that. That's what, the, that's what creates friendship. And that's why he says in this one place in his book, uh, The Four Loves, he says, this is why those pathetic people who want nothing more than friendship can never find friendship. Because someone says to them, do you see the same truth that I see? And they say, well, I don't really care about that at all. I just want you to like me. And he said, no friendship can ever exist. Because the prerequisite for friendship is that you have to want something, you have to love something more than friendship itself. And so for Christians, this is what we have. We have this common truth that we see. And it's not, these, these friendships, these kind of friendships I'm talking about are not based on, you know, common age or, or race or social status or shared hobbies or being at a similar stage of life. I'm talking about something which transcends all of those things. And that is that we have understood and embraced Jesus as our Savior and the gospel message of who he is and what he's done for us. And see, you and I need this kind of spiritual friendship, especially with people who are different than you. So when I encourage you to have spiritual friendship, I want you to purposefully seek out people who are different than you, but you share this one thing in common. Because especially when you get people who are different than you, you build each other up. You receive and you give. You teach and you learn. See, Christianity was never meant to be an individual pursuit, but a team sport. So let's quickly look through some of these people that Paul counted as friends. A lot of them have very interesting backstories that we could talk about for a long time, but we're just going to take a quick look through them. In verse 7 through 9, he mentions this man named Tychicus. Now, Tychicus, he was a man who the Colossians had never met before, but he was the one who would be carrying the letter from Paul in Rome to these people individually, you know, personally, to the Colossians. And along with him, in verse 9, we read about this man, Onesimus. Now, if that name rings a bell for you, then good, because it should. The letter of Philemon, one of the smallest books, shortest books in the Bible, it's one of the shortest books in the New Testament, it's just one chapter long, it was written about this man, Onesimus. See, here's what happened. Onesimus was a runaway slave who had come to Rome after running away from the person that he was in slavery to. And at one point, he had become a Christian. We don't know when, but he became a Christian sometime along the way, and he joined the church in Rome. And while Paul was in Rome in jail, 
he came to know about this man, Onesimus, who was an escaped slave. And as they got to talking, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, you find out that the world is a really small place. He comes to find out that Paul actually knows the guy who used to be his master who he ran away from. That guy's name was Philemon. He's the guy that he writes the letter to. And he's like, crazy, small world. Well, see, most slaves in that day were not slaves in the way like we had slavery here in the United States. They were more of what we would call indentured servants, meaning that they had agreed to work for a determined period of time in exchange for a sum of money, whether that was a loan or for some people it was to get out of debt. For some people it was a way of escaping poverty. And so Onesimus had entered into this kind of contractual agreement with this man Philemon, but somewhere along the line he had taken the money and he had bailed. He had run away. And uh, that's not good. So Paul says to Onesimus, when he comes to find out about this, he says, Onesimus, you know, now that you've become a Christian, the right thing for you to do, the good thing for you to do, you need to go to Philemon and you need to look him in the eye and you need to apologize for what you did. But Paul, at the same time, also writes a letter to Philemon that he sends with Onesimus. And in that letter, he says this. He says, quote, I want you to receive Onesimus back, not as a slave, but as a brother. He says, I want you to forgive him everything. everything. And whatever he owes you, Paul says, I want you to count it to my account. Credit it to me. I'm going to pay back what he owes you. It's an awesome story of redemption. We see Paul paying Onesimus' debt just as Jesus paid his debt. And that's the kind of gospel reenactment that we've been talking about here in this letter that Paul has been talking about in Colossians as the model and the motivation for the Christian life. This is what Jesus did for me, and now I want to do it for other people. In verse 10, we read about this man, Aristarchus. And we've talked about him before, because in Acts chapter 27, when we studied through Acts, we saw this guy at the end of the book. He accompanied Paul, you know, from his imprisonment in Palestine, he accompanied him on his boat journey to Rome. And it would seem, from what we read here, that Aristarchus stayed with Paul for the entire duration of the time that he was in custody in Rome. Talk about a friend, right? Like being able to give up your own freedom just to be there for your friend. Now what's more, his name Aristarchus, as you might pick out, aristocrat, right? It indicates that he was from an aristocratic background. So this man, on top of everything, we see that he gave up wealth, he gave up status in order to minister to a friend, and that reminds us of someone else, doesn't it? Who also gave up ultimate wealth and ultimate status in order to minister to us in our need, who called us his friends. Of course, I'm talking about Jesus. See, here's another example of someone living out their life in response to and in reenactment of what Jesus had done for them. In verse 10, we read about Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. Now, this guy is named at different places. Sometimes he's called John, sometimes he's called Mark. Generally, he's called John Mark because it seems that he had two names. Uh, and this is Barnabas' cousin. This is the guy who Paul and Barnabas got in a big fight over in Acts chapter 14. Paul couldn't stand this guy, right? Paul did not want to be around this guy at that time. See, John Mark had come with Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey, but halfway through, he had bailed on them. He deserted them in a time of need. And so when they were getting ready to go on their second missionary journey, and Barnabas invited John Mark to come with them again, Paul said, look, if your cousin comes with us, then I'm not going. And Barnabas said, well, then fine, don't go. And Paul said, well, fine, I won't go. And they split up, and they didn't talk to each other anymore. They parted ways. It wasn't a good thing. I mean, ultimately, we can say that God used that bad thing for good, but it's certainly not a model worth following. 
They got in a fight. They got in a disagreement. They stopped talking to each other. But now many years later, look who's in Rome visiting Paul. John Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. This is wonderful to see. This reconciliation that took place, this forgiveness. You know, in the body of Christ, as redeemed people, there's no place for holding grudges. There's no place for holding on to bitterness where Christ has forgiven and reconciled us to himself. In verse 12, we read about Epaphras, and he says, Epaphras is laboring for you in prayer, and he's working hard on your behalf. You see, Epaphras was their pastor. He was the pastor of three churches, which were all in the same area. Church in Colossae, they're listed here in that verse. Church in Colossae, and he also had planted two other churches in Hierapolis and Laodicea. He was a busy man, but he was a man who was busy about the work of the Lord. In verse 14, we read about Luke, who he calls the beloved physician. This is, of course, the man who wrote the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. In verse 14, also, we read about a man named Demas. Now, he's interesting because he's mentioned in three of Paul's letters. He's mentioned here in Colossians. He's mentioned in Philemon, which was, of course, written at the same time. And he's also mentioned in 2 Timothy, which which was written several years later during Paul's second Roman imprisonment. And there we read that Paul, or sorry, Demas, in that last letter that Paul writes, here he writes, you know, he's a companion, he's a worker for the gospel. Uh, But in 2 Timothy, Paul says that Demas had forsaken him and that he had even forsaken his faith. Now, we don't know very much about Demas. All we have here are the faint outlines of a man who at one time was a Christian, even involved in ministry, but later on fell away. And that should be such a sobering reminder for us of how important it is to abide in Christ and remain connected to the the source and the root of our life. In verse 15, we'll end here, we mention Nympha and the church that met in her house. Now this gets to the idea of, you know, early churches were organized in people's homes. Christianity was not a legally recognized religion in the Roman Empire for the first couple hundred years. And so they couldn't get permission to purchase or to build their own buildings. And since few homes were large, there were usually several congregations in a city and they would meet in different people's homes and they would have a pastor or an elder overseeing those churches. And for the first 200 or so years of Christianity, this is how the majority of churches met. But again, the reason they did that was out of necessity. As soon as they could have their own buildings, they did. And the point is this, God can work in any setting. He can work in, you know, big fancy church buildings and he can work in people's homes. The importance is that the building itself should never become the focus of the church. It should only and always ever be a tool for the furtherance of God's work through the church. And I think that's something for, it's important for us to keep in mind as we start taking steps as a church to get a building of our own in the future. But Paul concludes the letter about the uniqueness of the gospel and the greatness of Jesus by taking the pen in his own hands and concluding with these words. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace towards us. We thank you for the uniqueness of who you are. Lord, that as we we look upon the face of Jesus, we don't just see another good man who taught good things, who taught morality, but we see God, you yourself come to us, put an end to injustice and evil and suffering in the world, to take our curse upon yourself so that you could destroy evil without destroying us. So Lord, we thank you for that and we thank you for the unique message of your grace. Lord, that it's not because of who we are or what we have done that you would accept us, but because of who you are and what you have done. And as we reflect on that, it causes us to just 
glorify you all the more. And Lord, we thank you for the unique power of the gospel in our lives. We thank you, Lord, that you come into our lives, you transform us from the inside out, you make us into new people for your glory and for our good. And we do pray, Lord, that you would let that be true of our lives, that Jesus would be our life. And Lord, we we also reflect on that idea of how time is short and we're called to redeem the time and make the best use of it. Lord, I pray for anybody here today who would say, you know, there are things in my life which I know that God has been wanting me to change, that God has been wanting a change within me, but I've been resisting. Maybe there are even people here today who would say, I know that God wants me to give my life to him, but I've been dragging my feet. Lord, may we see that, that there's no guarantees and time is short. And Lord, I pray that today would be the day when we would say yes to you in every area of our lives, that we would be able to say legitimately, Christ who is my life. And we pray that in Jesus. You've been listening to Be Set Free, the radio outreach of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. We have three in-person services on Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30, and 11 a.m. And our 9.30 and 11 services are live streamed on our website for those who would like to worship with us online. We are located just east of County Line Road and Highway 119 at 2950 Colorful Avenue in Longmont. For more information or to hear other messages from Pastor Nick, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. Be Set Free is a listener-supported program. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support this ministry, you can send a donation via check to 2950 Colorful Avenue, Longmont, Colorado, 80504, or donate online at besetfreeradio.com. 